Hey Mutz, it's Devin here. We really hope that you've been enjoying the mini-sodes. We have another one coming at you next week with an exciting guest. In the meantime, we're still figuring out what this new iteration of the show is going to be like. David and I have some really exciting guests coming up for you for our next films that we cover. However, we just need a little bit more time to figure out what this new setup is gonna be like. So we appreciate you bearing with us, but in the meantime, we are not going to leave you hanging. For the next couple of months, we will be re-releasing some older episodes. And we're kind of excited to do this because there are so many new listeners out there who may not have heard the episode, or maybe our old listeners didn't get a chance to watch the movies before the episode was released. So today we are bringing you a re-release of Incident in a Ghost Land and Identity. We thought this one was relevant because we recently touched on Insidious 2 in our review of Insidious the Red Door. And in Insidious 2, there is a, I'm going to say trans character that is presented. And it's a a complicated character. And we cover the representation of trans characters in horror pretty heavily in this episode. We also thought this was timely because it's paired with Identity, directed by James Mangold. And if you didn't know, James Mangold recently directed Indiana Jones' The Dial of Destiny. Both these movies have a lot of twists and turns, and the main focus of our conversation is talking about reality and how it's presented in both of these movies. I don't want to go too far into it in case spoilers. So I'll close out by saying thanks again for bearing with us. Stick with us a little bit longer. We only have a couple re-releases for you guys, and then we have some brand new stuff that will be really exciting down the line. Okay, without further ado, I now present to you Incident in a Ghostland and Identity. Before we begin, we wanted to mention that this episode contains conversations about suicide and sexual assault. Please take care when listening. David, are you ready to talk about these movies today? This is going to be some uh, some normal fucked up shit on the pod. All right, Devin, get us started. So our first film today is Incident in a Ghostland, written and directed by Pascal Lagier. Sisters Beth and Vera and their mother Pauline move into a new house. The sisters have their differences. Vera more a popular girl and Beth more emo. Tensions are already high when they first enter the home that looks like, well, it looks like something out of a horror movie, filled with gothic art and porcelain dolls. Things take a turn when an ice cream truck slash candy mobile pulls up to the house. Two people invade the home and attack the woman. Flash forward and Beth is a successful horror writer with a happy family, but Vera never recovered from the incident. Their mother keeps Vera in the basement of the old house as Vera is convinced it is still the night that they were attacked. The film turns again when it is revealed that it is, in fact, still the night of the incident, and it is Beth who has created this false future in which everything is good. But in reality, their mother is dead, having been killed by the two villains, and the two girls are prisoners. The girls constantly try to escape, Beth falling in and out of her fantasy scapes, and once they manage to get out in a field where they find two cops. The villains recapture the girls and kill the cops, but not before the cops report them. The girls are saved, bloodied, and very brave. Again, this is Incident in a Ghostland. Man, it is such a shame that we don't have Rob here with this movie. (laughs) You just know he would have some great thoughts. (laughs) I know. I was, I, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We really tried to make it work. This is actually his suggestion. This was his picks for the movies, but then we wound up pushing several times, trying to get all three of us together, and it just didn't work out. But anyway. Anyway, we'll try to honor him the best that we can. Yes, and uh, hopefully he'll send us at least his bone reviews that we can plug into the the end of the episode. So the first question that we we might as well ask, uh, what 
do you think that the dolls represented in the movie they, there's a lot of doll imagery that the two killers dressed them up as dolls they're obsessed with dolls the ogre is always like sniffing the dolls why do you think dolls why dolls yeah the the, the dolls are interesting because there's like it is very much like an infantilism of women in general and i think Vera says this herself when she becomes broken, when the ogre tires of her, or I, I, I don't even know what really happens to her that makes her broken. Who make, that makes which one broken? Vera? Vera, yeah. I think we can surmise. I mean, there's a whole scene with them messing around with Beth in the end. Rape is kind of implied, trigger warning, by the way. Rape is implied, but... I, I'm i not convinced that they were necessarily raping her. Like, the way that the ogre is, he doesn't seem to understand the idea of sex so much that he is... Yeah. Like, the, the, the villains are definitely sexually motivated, but I don't know if their idea of sex involves actual sex. And that's interesting when we look at the, like, him treating them as dolls, dressing them up as dolls. Yeah. Oh, what I was saying before was Varys mentioning to Beth, like, don't make a sound, don't cry. Oh, the don't cry really gets me and we can go into that. But yeah, it is interesting that he doesn't look at them so much as sex objects. Though he does, we do see the hint of rape is with like when we're in the fantasy world and Vera's like chained to the bed. But in the real world, when we're with Beth in in the moment that she meets the ogre or like becomes trapped by the ogre, it does read a lot like there's definitely molestation going on and like, like mutilation of the genitals. I want to clarify, we're saying ogre because the two villains in the film aren't named and the girls call them the ogre and the witch. We'll get into that. Going back to your question. Yeah, a lot of mutilation, a lot of physical beating for sure. I mean, her face is heavily messed up within the movie. She's buried in prosthetics. And then we see like they're burning the girls. And it seems that they do more damage if the girls make noise almost like the, they they want to keep the illusion of the girls being dolls themselves and if you break that illusion and reveal that you are an actual person then they lash out against it yeah when the ogre first grabs them i mean it, it an interesting choice but one that was made that i actually appreciate because i always love when you see menstruation on screen um but yeah beth like gets her period for the first time and the ogre picks her up and sniffs her and says no, like throws her to the side and picks Vera instead. And I think, yeah, I think that's a great representation of what you were just saying of it kind of proves that she's a human being and not uh, <laughs> not just like an inanimate object that he can play with. <laughs> and that also just it all ties into that idea of illusions as well, that the movie is largely about constructing your own reality. And that's what the killers are trying to do as well. Mm. I didn't catch that. I love that. I mean, I love that, but also you can kind of read it a bit offensively as well. My reading of this movie, this isn't what I believe. This is what I think the movie is saying, is that uh, the, the witch character is, it's not specified whether it's a trans woman or if it's a cross-dressing man. They don't give any backstory. They don't give the character any personality. They don't have any lines. But it is very easy to read this movie as this person is also building an illusion, which is obviously not in any way correct to the experience of trans people or cross-dressers. But that is what I think the movie is saying about it. Interesting. I can't believe that still in 2018, we are having trans people like portrayed in films as for the sake of making it scarier, making them. Yeah. It, yeah. In Pet Cemetery, we talked a bit about how uh, the Zelda is framed as scary because she's played by a man. But this movie just doubles down on that completely. And it's like, no, the reason you should be afraid of this person is because they are not heteronormative yeah. or cisnormative. Again, in the real world, a man can be a cis man and still enjoy wearing women's clothing and enjoy dressing as a woman. True. That doesn't necessarily mean that they use she, her pronouns. True. But we, we just don't have enough information. Yes. 
the fact that they don't give any background to these villains or like don't even like confirm who who they are in any way or if we're, we're supposed to read this person as trans or I like I don't even know but it 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 complicates their the ogre and the witch's relationship right because there is this sense of yeah. like the witch character being sort of a mother character to the ogre you know they kind of take care of the girls and they take care of the ogre and they dress the girls up and then like deliver the girls to the ogre as as like presenting them with a new toy or something which is a very like motherhood relationship oh that's interesting i hadn't thought of that that makes sense i mean how did you see their relationship i hadn't thought about it much i like your interpretation because that also ties into beth and vera's mother as well i mean these two do go around killing families specifically they kill the mothers and play with the daughters which i guess is i i mean they don't seem to ever actually kill the daughters i don't which doesn't really make any sense but anyway <laughs> looking at the bigger picture too it's more so a comment on the female gender as a whole and women as a whole more yes. so than it comments on masculinity or the male gender yes it talks a lot about that gender dynamic uh there is a lot of brutality in the movie that is very much directed at the women And it's frequently discussed in regards to this movie, whether or not that's necessary. So I want to ask you, what do you think that the brutality accomplishes? Is it necessary? And if it's not necessary, then is that a problem? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it is pretty brutal. And I think one part of the answer would be, I do think it's necessary in order to place us in Beth's world a little bit more so and just understand understand what she's gone through and what her and her sister are going through and like try to understand why she would break so suddenly. We're presented with her of being this very put together, mature young girl to suddenly, you know, shut down and and disassociate and create this fantasy world. Like that's a hard thing for audiences to reach for, I think. Yeah, totally. Rather than just showing us why Beth is traumatized or telling us why Beth is traumatized, they want us to feel why Beth is traumatized. Yeah. They want us to feel what is happening. It, I think it does another thing as well. Like for for Vera, before before we know that this world is a a I'm saying fantasy world, but a a um yeah, a fantasy world of, of Beth essentially. Before before we know that, you know, we're we're shown Vera as this woman who grew up and like can't escape that night. Like we we see her as this as totally broken. And I think in order to believe that we have to see the brutality as well and i think like ultimately that helps us feed into that twist a little bit i actually kind of disagree because ooh the movie isn't brutal until later like i i don't think it's that brutal in the beginning we we see the mom getting killed but not really but yes really in the beginning <laughs> but other than that like all the really uh, horrifying stuff comes in the final act and you're right i mean it's totally legitimate to be traumatized by this terrible attack that happened on your family but uh in terms of feeling why vera is like this i i don't feel that i mean i knew what was happening right away but <laughs> 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 so i don't have the experience of thinking that vera is actually going through this but i imagine that if you were to have that experience of thinking that vera is actually just horrified by this night then it it seems kind of out of place it doesn't really seem to match up with what we were shown you're right you're right this is the problem of of having seen this movie a month ago and recording later on um <laughs> I, yeah no i agree i i remember sitting down and, and watching vera in that point and i think it does the opposite of what i was saying with beth of like basically showing vera being the problematic crazy girl yeah definitely yeah it, it very very much does she she's very much the what's her name from jane Eyre? jane no i don't know <laughs> no <laughs> mrs rochester or whatever the the husband's first wife who he keeps locked in the attic because she's too crazy oh she's one of those disappointment wives yeah i haven't i haven't read that book in fucking forever but you said that you knew that this was a fantasy world it was really obvious what was okay 
I, no one told I, me. I just figured it out immediately. I agree. <laughs> the moment that Vera called Beth and was freaking out, I just instantly went, oh, this isn't real. Yeah. Okay. I, I had the same feeling, but what so what was what were the things that gave it away for you the phone call the immediate the first phone call from vera to beth where vera sounds like she's still in the night i'm just like oh it's still the same night oh. I, and that was just immediate and then i never had any question past that point That's i never funny. doubted so after like... that it's just literally within two minutes of presenting this uh flash forward i was just like oh this 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 isn't real. <laughs> did you think it was going to go back to the night, though? Or did you think that we were going to stay in like this? Yeah, because it was yeah. still the same night. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it might take longer. I was expecting it to be like at the end of the movie. It's a big twist, which I figured out right away. So I was glad that the twist happened at just the halfway point so that I didn't have to keep being smarter in the movie. <laughs> I, it really it, it uh yeah it made you be like oh man like this movie this is what this movie is I, i'll tell you what it was for me it was the beer that they were drinking oh interesting beth comes home and she has a beer with her mom and i was like they never show two women drinking beers together oh, I love that and then i was like oh wait no that's not real <laughs> She doesn't because oh she's God. a kid. She doesn't know what else they drink. They just drink beer. Because women can't drink beer together in movies? They don't. They never drink beer together in movies. Wow. That's so weird. I never even thought about that. At least not horror <laughs> movies made by men. <laughs> <laughs> women like, drink wine. Men yeah, drink exactly. Beer. Usually it's women drink and wine. classy men drink whiskey. And fancy men drink red wine. Exactly. <laughs> but but I mean, think about it. It's it's Beth's mind as a child and she's imagining like, what will it look like as an adult, like hanging out with my mom? Mm. It's drinking beer. Like, what else does she know? You know, mm. that's what gave it away for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But to, to go back to the brutality question, with all this in mind, I don't think the brutality is necessary to tell the rest of the story. I think that the rest of the story is there to support the brutality. Yeah, have you seen the director's other movies? I haven't. Martyrs, yes. I saw Martyrs sometimes. You saw ago. Martyrs, okay. Yeah. I've heard it's good. I want to watch it at some point. It is brutal, but in a different way. It sounds like it's more brutal than this one. Yeah, I think there's a level of like I don't I don't I don't want to be mean towards this movie, to be clear. I I Oh, and... I don't either. <laughs> and I'm saying that I I think that the brutality is not a means, but an ends in itself. I don't think that's a problem, necessarily. I think that its treatment of trans characters and intellectually disabled characters is extremely problematic, but I don't think that just being a brutal movie is a bad thing. I, I don't have a problem with the fact that, oh, this is vicious and torture porn or whatever. I love torture porn. Torture porn's great. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i mean yeah, I, i'm a rob zombie fan so i'm not <laughs> I know. <laughs> no i agree and i mean like there is a and i i, I want to talk about this later when we talk about the two movies as well but this movie is saying something with a love for horror fiction with beth being a horror writer and i think there is a level of of loving horror for the escapism or the understanding of the real terrors that happen in the world. I mean, this is like the basis of our yes. whole podcast. And I think these things happen. Like maybe people don't ride around in an ice cream truck full of candy and like dress girls up as dolls, but they do, you know, genital mutilation and they do molest a little girl. Like those things that happens. Yeah, I mean, the, the basic idea of the movie isn't that far off from something that would totally really happen. Yeah, there there are definitely men in the world who drive around in ice cream trucks and then abduct <laughs> uh, young women and girls and uh, torture them. That that definitely happens, and it, it's horrifying and terrible. There is a theory that I want to put forth. Okay. It was one that I read when I was reading reviews and doing some research, and it's that in fact, the whole entire movie is not real and that I'm not exactly sure whose imagination it is or whose disassociation it is. It's Pascal Lagier's imagination. 
<laughs> he's a character that's never presented at all. <laughs> it's true. The entire movie is just a movie. Sorry. No, it's true. It's true. But okay, on, in the on, world of the on. movie, in the world of the movie, that the movie is actually like the whole story is actually a fan alphabetization. So either starting from them entering the house, or I mean, who knows? I think there's a lot to support this, and then I'm curious, like what? So like it's all Beth's it. story that Beth wrote. That's one to consider. Is it still a hallucination in this theory or is it just a story? Oh, and I think that's the question is like, it can be a multitude of things. And I don't necessarily even know if it's Beth's imagination at this point. I went back and I still am not sure like whose it can be because we are presented with the idea of, I mean, the first thing that we see of Beth, she's reading a story. So it could be one of her stories. Okay. I don't like the theory. (laughs) I know. I know. It's like, I'm like, there's, there's nothing... Let me tell you the the things that kind of support it being a fantasy, but okay. I don't think there's anything that shows us whose fantasy it is or if it's a story or not. Yeah, just the fact that it's not specific annoys me. But go on, go on, go yeah. on. No, I I agree. Well, I, and there's many different theories. That's why I'm not saying anything specific because there's a, a lot of theories. Theory number one, the house is so fucking insane. Come on. There is no <laughs> thing in the world that has that many weird like dolls and collection i mean like there is there is but not in the world of like a horror film she shit is that exists french i think she's quebecois <laughs> <laughs> but like but the aunt we get nothing about the aunt we have to like we don't get any backstory we get her name so we're automatically like imagining who this aunt could have possibly been in one way then it could be Beth knowing that they're moving to the aunt's house and imagining what she wants the aunt's house to be. There is like, who dreams up a ice cream truck full of candy? Like, come on, that's got to be from a child's brain, right? Eh, I mean, eh. it's a cover anyway. Like, it's not a real ice cream truck, even if it's all real. Yeah, yeah, that which is a weird thing anyway if you're gonna be an ice cream if you're gonna lure kids with candy why not just lure them with ice i don't know i i think movies can be over the top and not be just complete not real even within the world like it's not real it's just it, it is a movie it's but allowed to be ridiculous just, it's so over the top i don't know it's so over the top but then there's also there's multiple things throughout where like it's, it's not more over the top than frank and hooker <laughs> okay but okay yeah, but they're, they're, I don't know. That's supposed to be like a B horror and over the top. But this one felt like it wasn't necessarily. I don't know. It's it's a complicated film in terms of just like what it necessarily is and how it was executed. But also throughout too, they have like other quotes where like Beth is in the gas station. She picks up the newspaper, reads about this story of people kidnapping and and killing families, especially ones with two girls. Her sister goes, "You made that up." She very well could have. She very in the advancement. She could be making this all up. When they walk into the house, I think I said this earlier. When Vera is like, it looks like a Rob Zombie's house. Rob Zombie house. She also says it also looks like an extension of Beth's brain. By the way, Rob Zombie is a real person, and this is what his real house looks like. So there is someone who would live in a house like. Okay. This. Yes, I I take it all back. <laughs> in like world, and yes, I would probably live in it. But in the world of the movie, it seems a little like far fetched. <laughs> It does seem like something a child horror writer would dream up. Where I thought you were going with this, because I've heard a a different theory that's similar-ish, but not. It doesn't present that the entire movie is a work of fiction. It says that the end of the movie is Beth disassociating again and Vera is dead. Oh, so like she's disassociating that they are saved. Yes. It is another illusion that they are saved and that Vera has survived the attack. And in reality, no one came to save them. And that one's backed up just by the fact that it is kind of a day of sex machina that comes in at the end. And I think yeah. that Vera has no lines after they're saved. Mm. I, I think that she's completely mute. So I think there is evidence to back that one up. I still don't like it just because I don't like most theories that assume that the ending isn't real except for pan's labyrinth the ending of pan's labyrinth is not real even though everything else is we've been over that (laughs) (laughs) but i mean there is evidence in this one and of course it is an actual theme of the movie that a lot of the time we are presented with things that aren't actually happening 
I see the argument for that one. I, 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 I don't like falling down the rabbit hole of uh, questioning whether anything is actually happening or not. I, I to me, that just be, get becomes theory porn. It's theory porn. <laughs> yeah. And nothing is real. All the Rugrats are actually dead. Uh, all the kids in, in Ed, Ed and Eddie are in limbo. Actually, I like that theory. <laughs> um, and Pokemon is all a dream. <laughs> oh gosh no yeah usually i would i would totally agree with you like mm, that seems a little far-fetched but i think when you when a filmmaker presents a story that literally the themes are all about fantasy and fiction and we're supposed to explore yeah. like how we cope with certain things through fiction like if that was what your whole movie is about i think we can be theorizing and making those jumps a little bit more and probably should be that's fair but yeah it's all just theories it's all just theories until we get to the next movie. Yeah, should we jump over? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right, David, what is our next film? As I was going up the stair, I met a man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. I wish, I wish he'd go away. Eleven people meet at a motel in the rainy Nevada desert. Among them, two cops, a family of three, an actress, a newlywed couple, the motel owner a con, and a prostitute. They do not know each other for the most part and have nothing in common, but someone is killing them one by one and counting down as they do. What's more, the bodies are mysteriously disappearing and some of the deaths seem impossible to have planned. As the night creeps on and a rainstorm floods the roads, it's clear they are alone and must figure out for themselves what is going on and who is the killer. Devin, ask me which one's the killer. David, which one's the killer? They're all the same person. Malcolm Rivers is on death row after a murder spree some years ago. However, he suffers from dissociative identity disorder, and so his lawyer and doctor have arranged this last-minute plea to rid Malcolm of his mysterious alt and prove the others are innocent. Unfortunately, after eliminating the red herrings of the con and motel owner, nice cop Ed incorrectly surmises that mean cop Rhodes who it turns out was actually a fellow con escaping with his partner, must be the villain. After Ed gives his own life to stop Rhodes, it seems for a minute that Paris, the sex worker ult, is the last one standing. Except the true murderer, child Timothy York, still stands. He eliminates Paris, seizes permanent control as Malcolm's final remaining identity, and breaks out of his chains in the middle of a Nevada desert. This is 2003's Identity, directed by James Mangold from a script by Michael Cooney, starring John Cusack, Ray Liotta, Amanda Peets, Alfred Molina, John Hawks, Clay Duvall, and Rebecca de Mornay, and that's just the names I recognize. <laughs> I know, there are so many good people in this movie. <laughs> oh, man. I, I was like, oh, man, this fucking cast like is amazing. They're all really good, too. I wish John Hawks had become a bigger deal. He's great. I know. I still haven't seen most of Rebecca Durden Mornay's early movies, but I worked with her for a day on Jessica Jones, and she was very nice. There's obviously a lot of different things going on in this movie, and we'll we'll do our best to talk about them all. The place that I do want to start is is what subgenre of horror or thriller do you think this is? <sighs> I mean, it's kind of a slasher. It's kind of a Hitchcockian thingamabob. It's kind of the genre of something that was written by the guy who wrote Jack Frost, but directed by the guy who directed Logan. <laughs> which which it is, in case you didn't catch that. <laughs> yes, uh, Logan and Ford v. Ferrari and Walk the Line. James Mangold's a very prolific director. He, he has a lot yeah. of movies that I keep forgetting he directed. Oh, and he did Girl Interrupted, which also has yes. played of all. Oh, I just realized that. Clay Duvall is in both the James Mangold movies. Anyway. <laughs> Way off topic. Ultimately, I think that the real genre that this is, is 2003. <laughs> that this just yeah. feels like it's piggybacking <laughs> on that trend of late 90s and early 2000s, and that it is the culmination of of all this stuff from the usual suspects to Fight Club to The Sixth Sense, all this buildup of uh, plot twist movies is what this is. 
It is the ultimate plot twist movie, or at least it's trying to be. Oh, interesting, interesting. So you think like the whole basis is built for the plot twist? You've seen Adaptation, right? Oh, it's one of my top five. So for those who don't know, Adaptation is this movie that came out in 2001. It's not horror in any way. It's about a writer, Charlie Kaufman, who is a real writer and the actual writer of this movie. He wrote himself into his own movie. In the film, he gives himself a twin brother who isn't real in real life, but he is in the movie, named Donald Kaufman. And he decides that he wants to become a writer too. And the movie he pitches that he's writing is a cop is chasing a killer who has kidnapped a girl. And then it turns out that all three of them are the same person. And he calls it three. And this is supposed to be funny. Like, it's the most ridiculous, generic, cliched, trope-filled plot that you could possibly think of. But then when he starts pitching it, it does really well. People read the script and they're like, Charlie, your brother is a brilliant writer. You should ask him for advice. (laughs) And I I think the actual quote in that movie is, the only thing that is more overused in film is dissociative identity disorder. I think he like actually says like, this is literally the most overused and cliche trope you could think of. Well, it almost feels like they saw adaptation and said, oh, that's a great idea for a movie. Let's make that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right, I'm 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 getting David to read. I'm getting David to read. Gotcha. <laughs> Which is, I love that it's a real movie now. <laughs> okay, I think under normal circumstances, I would agree with you. I think DID is like, I hate, I hate it so much because it is an overused trope when they say, oh, the twist is that they're all the same person. But I don't think this movie i don't think the twist in this movie is that it is the same person i think they say that pretty fucking early on i mean at some point i just figured it out because it is such a trope and because we have been conditioned to ask okay is there a chance that all these people are the same person or is there a chance that any of these Mm. people are the same but i do think that the movie takes real steps to cover that up I, I think it is definitely a twist. We are used to more than one person being the same person, but in this case, literally all of them are the same person. So it is able to reject a lot of the foreshadows that we're used to, that there's no like, oh, these two people only interact with each other because they're all the same person, so they don't have to only interact with each other. Hmm. And even the... They, they're they showing parts of the hearing throughout the movie. So you're being introduced to there is a killer on the loose. But without knowing the twist, you just assume that that's the con that is at the motel. You just assume, oh, that's the killer that they're after. He got sidetracked by the storm and now he's at the motel. I didn't think that. I, I kind of like didn't see the correlation at the same because you're presented. The, the first thing that you see in the film is basically the case files of this this convict. But it's over to credits where you're not paying attention to it. Oh, uh, I guess I always pay attention to the first images. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but they pretty explicitly say a lot of things. And the very first thing that gives it away, yes. I think, is the images of the dead bodies in the motel, um, the convict having uh, committed six murders in 1998, which we don't know what year the film is taking place. Yeah. Um, but the pictures of the actual bodies from the real life crime are not that of the people that we see later on. We never see the same. The people are not the characters in the film. So I was like, oh, this definitely isn't the guy who these, this isn't how he murdered people. And he only murdered six people, which they say in the beginning. And there's 10. There are differences in those details. If, if, If you weren't paying close attention to those details, then it's easy to mistake and think, oh, maybe this is the flashback to when this was happening. You, you can even like almost gaslight yourself into being like, oh, maybe maybe I'm misremembering that thing that they said at the beginning. Did they actually say six or did they say something else? I don't know. Or you can just go with my thought where you're like, oh, the con is the killer. That's not supposed mm-hmm. to be a twist. Just this is the guy who was sidetracked. And then it's actually, I, I watched the movie again since it had been so long since I saw it. And I noticed that it's right after the con is killed that they cut back to the boardroom for the first time since the beginning of the movie so it's almost like wait he's not the killer and then yes recontextualize okay what's going on in this boardroom 
And it takes quite a while before Mal- you actually see Malcolm Rivers' actual face. So you're still kind of thinking like, oh, maybe one of these guy- other guys is Malcolm Rivers. I'm confused. What's going on? You do see his face in the beginning when they're going through the court files. <laughs> Again, if it you gives notice everything it. away. I know. Yeah, it does. I guess if you're not watching the movie, it does. I think that when the opening credits are happening, you're given too much information to process all of it. Fair. Most of the time, credits are a prelude. And we're not expecting it to give away the entire twist of the movie in the opening credits. And I think that it's actually a very clever way to hide this extremely important information. But that's why I think that this movie isn't necessarily built up for the twist. And where a lot of DID movies like are built for that twist. I think there is a lot that goes on in this movie that doesn't necessarily have to do with the surprise that they're all the same person. Because this movie has so many subgenres. Because it is... Not just a who done it in terms of like, oh, who done it? They the same person. It's no, which personality? Yeah, uh, it's loosely based on an Agatha Christie novel as well. Oh, really? Yes. There's a part where Cleo Duvall is like, "Hey, you guys know that Agatha Christie book? Maybe that's what this is." I do want to explore the choice of using DID. You and I like are not experts in this field. No. We can assume because it's 2003. I think DSM literally was just changed to making it DID instead of multiple personality disorder. So I think it's like around this time that people are starting to like explore this mental illness a little bit more. So still like we can assume the filmmakers probably don't have great knowledge so far or represent it very well. It is an art piece. I do want to um, ask you who you think or what you think these characters that Malcolm creates, these all the other personalities that he creates, what they represent either to him or to the filmmakers? Well, to the filmmakers, I think that it's very intentionally leaning on different character tropes that none of them feel like real people necessarily. Like Rebecca de Mornay plays this actor, but she's like super ultimate diva. She very much feels like a caricature and not like a real person. It's annoying before you find out what's actually going on. Yeah. Amanda Peets very much plays the prostitute with a heart of gold trope. But in terms of Malcolm, I'm not sure what all of them represent, but Amanda Peets is the one who I think is most interesting because also in that opening credits, it's established that his mother was a sex worker who was murdered at a motel. And he was left there and brought into foster care. We don't know exactly which trauma sparked his dissociative identity disorder, but I, I believe it is established in the DSM, and they do acknowledge it in the movie as well, that this is caused by an extreme trauma in childhood. So that might have been in a foster care, or it might have been that his uh, mother was abusive. In any case, I think it's clear that Paris is more of a caricature and not meant to feel like a real person. So the way that I see her is that this is what Malcolm wishes his mother was like. This is his idea of sort of trying to reconcile. This is his fantasy of his mother. And then Larry, the motel owner, who immediately just assumes that Paris is a sex worker for no particular reason whatsoever and is then extremely hostile through her through (laughs) most of the movie. Uh, To me, he is like Malcolm's hatred of his mother. Mm. Then you even get a sort of reconciliation to some extent when he, he sees what she's really like. They sort of become friends. And it feels, again, like Malcolm is acting out this fantasy of getting to know his mother better, realizing she wasn't that bad of a person. Maybe. And obviously, Timothy is representative of Malcolm's child who was left behind. Right. For the most part, I, I, I totally agree. The characterizations is interesting um, because I think it. if we're looking at this, I agree that Malcolm fractured when he was young. And at that age, I think all we really know of people are these characterizations of who they are. And so I like the idea that like, I mean, film is media and how else do we get these other characters in life, but through media. So maybe like this child of Malcolm is creating, you know, this actress from what he's seen them to be on TV, which would be a characterization. It was probably actually Rebecca de Mornay. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. 
But yeah, I totally agree that like, I think all the women represent some form of his mother and the men either some form of like who he wanted to be, who he wanted his dad to be, who he is, who mm. he thought he could be. Who Which he one do you think is the dad? He could be. I don't think any of them are necessarily the dad. Okay. I mean, George is a father. I, I do think that George is a representation of who his father, like an, an ideal father is. It's weird that so many of them are related to each other. What do you mean? I, I could be wrong. I don't think it's common for alters to be related. Like, oh, these two alters are married. Like, that's what? Mm. Why do you think that that decision was made in the movie? And what do you think that that represents? I think he does explore relationships with either his father or his mother. I mean, how you were saying with John Hawke's character of showing his anger towards his mother, I think he does say a lot of like how society, how men and how he himself, Malcolm, view women. He's exploring these ideas of seeing women as sex workers, seeing women as mothers through Alice's characters, uh, seeing women as, you know, young women who are scared through Clea Duvall's character. It's like the process of humanizing your parents, you know, of like, yeah, <laughs> figuring out like, oh, wait, they're people too. trying to humanize them in the way of like understanding them also of like, he very clearly has an issue with his mom being a sex worker. But these characters kind of represent the way of how he's working through that feeling. Yeah, Ed, John Cusack's character, who's really the protagonist of the film, doesn't have any issue with Paris being a sex worker. He is completely respectful toward her. So it, it, it's it's almost like this is the more sensitive side of him. He, he is the most empathetic one of all of them. And we see him being kind of the leading alter. It is common to have an alter who is like the head alter, I guess. <laughs> I don't know what <laughs> the term is there, but one who's a little more aware, allowing themselves to come through a little bit longer or more often, which the only person that we see come through presenting identity in Malcolm is John Cusack's character. So while we're on this topic of dissociation and associative identity disorder and mental illness, how do you think that all of this ties back into Ghostland? I'm not sure if Beth is actually suffering from dissociative identity disorder. I don't think she is. I think she's just having a dissociative episode. Yeah, I don't think that she is. Yeah. I don't want to diagnose her. I don't think that the yeah. movie is psychologically accurate regardless. So. <laughs> <laughs> but in a way, she does create these characters. I mean, she creates a future self, which I see as like an idealized future self. Very much. And Malcolm, I'm I'm sure one of those is one of those alters has to be like if not an idealized version of his dad, if not an idealized version of his mom, maybe an idealized version of himself somewhere in there as well. Probably John Cusack. It's probably John Cusack. But he's not ideal. In what way? What flaws specifically are you looking at? In that, I don't want to call him suicidal, but I think he does. Oh. He is, a, a, he is depressed. He talks about the moment that he goes up to the jumper and she asks him, you know, what else is there to live for? And he's like, I couldn't give her an honest answer. And I think that shows mm. a dissatisfaction with the world. And I think a person normally wouldn't idealize, like their ideal self wouldn't be someone who doesn't see the world as a as a good place to live. That's fair. Yeah. But I guess Beth's ideal self, her future self is also flawed in that she does have night terrors. But those are the real world leaking in. Mmm. Interesting. It is it it is the the actuality but twisted a little bit to make it feel more like it's just a nightmare and not something that will actually hurt her even though it is very much actually hurting her. Yeah. Even like she's not able to hide herself from Vera's screaming or her being abused or the scene where Vera is like actually hit and you know it's it, it, like presented as like a paranormal presence that she's yeah. being hit by nothing and Beth is literally like just cutting herself off from even seeing the ogre and the witch at all. So how do they differ in the representation of dissociation? And what does it mean that they differ? And why do they differ? Why do you think these two movies took such different approaches to this phenomena? Hmm. It's interesting, you know, Ghostlands from Beth's point of view, but in a way, it's also Malcolm's point of view identity. And I don't know necessarily if we're meant to... Are we meant to sympathize with Malcolm? 
because we sympathize with some of his alters? I think so. I mean, I think yeah. that identity shows us that the alters are literally different people. They're all played by different actors. And when Ed is controlling Malcolm's body, we literally see Malcolm as Ed, that John Cusack plays Malcolm in the chair for a minute before seeing his reflection and seeing what he really looks like and just freaking out mm -hmm. because you would if you thought you looked like something different. I mean, in a way, too, beyond just like the characters themselves, I think these movies are saying a lot about the stories that we tell ourselves and the importance of the stories we tell ourselves or not the importance, but rather the power. Yes. In both cases, they are creating stories using these common tropes in order to hide themselves or shield themselves from the horrors of the real world. Yeah, exactly. And in, in best case, it's the actual horrors that are going on to her that are really fucking brutal and awful. And in Malcolm's case, it's this childhood that we can assume was not a great one with the abuse and the death that he's seen. But also in the case of identity, this specific scenario where all the alters meet is brought about by Alfred Molina's doctor character. Some, somehow he literally triggers this. It doesn't make any sense. Where all the alters meet for the first time so they can figure out which one's the killer. He is going through a, a procedure, a psychological procedure, where they are trying to integrate the characters. So the psychological procedure is to create a story in which to weed out this bad alter which i'm pretty sure is not in any way clinically accurate but moving past that <laughs> so it is still talking about the story it is with more of a purpose perhaps than ghostland whereas in ghostland it's just to shield you in identity there is a clear goal in mind and i think i think it goes back to what i was saying earlier in, about ghostland of like horror is usually a way horror murder like all these things that are portrayed in these two films are a way to like work through some of the harder things in life. I mean, this is a constant thing that we're talking about in the horror community. It's just like people with anxiety tend to watch horror movies because they're like, oh, everything makes sense. <laughs> we had a whole episode that came out around Halloween on Wes Craven's New Nightmare and John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, where we were talking about exactly this. And for some reason, the episode didn't do that well, but you guys should all listen to it because it was great. And those are good movies. Those are great movies. Yeah. Yeah. And in that, we were also talking about how like Wes Craven's entire philosophy of horror was that this is a way of approaching these terrifying things in the real world in a safe environment. In these movies, the characters are doing the same thing, but they're doing it in, not through movies, but in their heads. They yeah. are creating their own fiction through which to process this trauma. Going off of that, like these are characters within movies. So like the movies are also yeah. saying a lot. It's it's very meta in that in that whole sense. <laughs> it's super, super meta. Oh man, it's so meta. And then I guess, I mean, both of them, the plot twist is that it is a fiction that was created by the characters. Right. Do you think of these movies presented as healthy to be creating these stories, though? Or do you think that they present it as an obstacle? I, in the world of Ghostland, I think they present it in a positive light. At the end, she's called brave. He's like, wow, you're a real fighter. I would have taken you as an athlete. And she's like, no, I'm a writer. And it like, it empowers. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. But it, it, it doesn't empower the, the creator of these fictional worlds, which I agree with. And then in terms of identity, it's not necessarily a, a positive way of looking at it, but I think the way in which the characters are created and if we are looking at my theory of like it's a way of Malcolm working through his relationship with his mother and his ideas about like who his mother is, how, who women are, who he himself is, it, it does seem like a healthy way of analyzing things, but also not healthy that he created these altars in the first place, yeah. obviously. Yeah. I don't know. What are your thoughts? I think that Ghostland, I, I completely disagree with Ghostland. I think Whoa. that movie explicitly presents this as a negative thing. I mean, yes, the cop calls her brave and whatnot, and I'm going off the assumption that the ending is real because I think it is. She's brave not because she created a fictional reality, but because she broke out of it. Mm. Because there's the big dramatic moment where she jumps through the window and says, no, I'm going to forget this 
fictional idealized future world and go and save my sister from these two killers. It's, oh my God, I can reference Superman now. (laughs) Oh, we almost did it without. Oh no. No, there's a really famous Superman story and it's great. They adapted it in the, the animated cartoon Justice League Unlimited as well. And it's like the best episode. Mongol is attacking the Fortress of Solitude and he's attacking Superman, Wonder Woman, and Batman. And Mongol is super powerful, so he can easily take them too, but Superman is the one who will give him a threat. But he puts a parasite on Superman that gives him an idealized world where he never left Krypton, where he has a family on Krypton, Lois Lane is there for some reason, and everything is perfect. And he has to recognize that this isn't real and get out of it. This happened in Batman animated cartoon as well. There was an episode in that one where the Mad Hatter creates a perfect world for Batman where someone else is Batman. His parents are alive. He's married to Catwoman. Everything is great. And when he breaks out of this, Mad Hatter tells him like, dude, I I gave you a perfect world. I gave you mm-hmm. everything you ever wanted. Why did you break out of it? And it's just like, well, it wasn't real. Right. And I think these move Ghostland especially, I think, is saying something similar that, but this isn't real. And we need to confront reality. It's saying that you, you can't hide from the real world. Even in her fictional, mm. idealized utopia, uh, the real world was still leaking in. She was still having nightmares. Her sister was still in danger and in trouble. She still had to drink beer. <laughs> Identity, I mean, an identity, the story is created in a way that will hopefully save his life. But you could also argue, again, mental illness doesn't actually make people into killers. But in the context of the movie, it is presented that his murderous alt was created by these stories. So it's still not necessarily a healthy way of coping, even an identity. Interesting. I guess I kind of read it that I thought he murdered people before he fractured. When he was nine? Yeah. Is that not the case? I thought he murdered them when he was young. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I could be wrong. I don't think so. I like those reads. I like those reads. And I, I think the, the whole point of both of the movies is to like have discussions like these about, yeah, whether or not an idealized fantasy or fiction is better than reality or is reality better or it doesn't matter if reality is better because it's reality. <laughs> it's that one character in the Matrix who uh, betrays them because he wants to go back into the Matrix. Yes, exactly. Well, you guys can let us know what you think. Do you, do you think these movies are arguing that using stories as a way of coping is healthy or do you think that they're arguing it's unhealthy or more likely is it probably just some middle ground between the two where there's an extent to which it's good tweet at us i'm curious what your guys' thoughts so now moving on to rob's favorite part of the show the bone (laughs) reviews section where we rate both movies on a scale of one to four bones with half bones in between uh devin what do you think of ghostland yeah, starting off with Ghostland. I really didn't like this movie. I it was <laughs> so and if you couldn't tell from from the way I was talking about it, it it was just really hard to get through. I think it had too much going on and everything felt not it, everything like nothing felt real and therefore I wasn't I didn't feel grounded in any sense and I was kind of mm-hmm. just like trying to figure out where I was in the world of the film and who I was relating to. Um a a brave execution really tried for something different. And I just don't think that it landed for me. I do want to point out the acting I really loved. I loved the sisterhood presented. I think it was a really great portrayal of two sisters. You have them fighting, you have them loving each other, you have them supporting each other and helping each other. I loved that. I did like the the familiar mother-daughter relationship as well. That was really cool. The production design was dope. Even oh, yeah. though like none of it really made sense in the real world, but like I don't care. That house was amazing. Her office was amazing. The everything they chose the set the set deck especially was gorgeous. But yeah, I'm I'm gonna end up giving it 0.5 bones. Oh it was, wow. It was a real tough one for me to get through. I respect that. Okay. I respect that a lot. <laughs> then I'm curious what yours is. What did you think of Ghostland? I have really mixed thoughts on this movie um it's so well shot 
the 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 craft involved is excellent like you said the production design it makes absolutely no sense but it's beautiful uh the cinematography is fantastic i love it when movies actually have black in their color grading and i know everyone now is complaining that movies are too dark but that's a stupid (laughs) (laughs) criticism movies are supposed to be dark it's okay to have things that are dark in your movies it's about the contrast (laughs) the the acting is excellent amelia jones love amelia jones she is in coda which just won best picture it was deserving of best picture in my personal opinion and she should have been nominated for an oscar it was really hard to watch her getting brutally tortured (laughs) in coastland i was not expecting that i was like what the fuck don't do this just let her sing i want to hear her sing please just sing both sides now (laughs) the portrayal of the trans character or cross-dresser or whatever they are and the the intellectually disabled character as just villains because of these things they have like there there's no dimensions presented except this person is not cis normative and this person is mentally challenged in some way like presenting these characters as just that and therefore they are villains is highly highly offensive this is Everything we were talking about in our Daniel Isn't Real episode times a lot. This is like the most transphobic movie I've ever seen. And I I have to take a lot of points away from that. Even though it's not that big a part of the movie, it is really well made. I can't give it more than like one and a half bones. I respect the craft a lot, but... Uh. What about identity? What, what What's your bone review of identity? <laughs> Identity is, I think I said this earlier, is the most 2003 movie ever made. And I kind of love that. Like, it's really silly and absurd and ridiculous and just so incredibly over the top. But it perfectly encapsulates this era of film and all the tropes that were popular at the time and just dials them up to 11. It is the ultimate culmination of that. And I think I liked it more when I watched it the second time, actually. I was a bit more casual with it because it was more just reminding me. And it's really fun to just watch casually and hear this extremely cheesy dialogue that is directed in a way that is so unbelievably earnest. I'll give it two and a half bones. I've been going back and forth between two and two and a half, and I'm going to go with two and a half after my rewatch. Nice. I don't want to be like (laughs) piggyback, but... That's essentially my review as well. I've been going in between two and a half. I think I'll land at at two. But yeah, the the first time I watched it, I was like, this is so extremely 2003. (laughs) But in a way that was like, I didn't hate watching it. It was enjoyable. It has its issues. But again, I'm talking that up to just like it's 2003. I think the second watch, I did see things that were a lot deeper and I really enjoyed it a lot more. Hmm. The cast is too fucking good to say like, the actors themselves are yeah. good to say like they gave bad performances because they didn't. And I, I, everything is interesting. And I think I'm sure I'll go back and watch it a third time and find something new that I didn't find before because it is so <laughs> layered. And also I could, I could watch John Cusack and anything, anything just, it's fine. It's fine. There's a great <laughs> gif I posted on, on Twitter. I'll have to retweet it, but it's Amanda Pete behind the scenes. And she's like, all I wanted to do was kiss John Cusack. I was going to say like, come on director. When do I get a kiss John Cusack? I'm like, yeah. Also Amanda Pete. Also, Amanda Pete. Anyway, I'll stop fighting early. Is John Cusack considered hot? To me. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. And Rob, what do you think? Oh, I can hear him. You can't hear him? What? Is that a voice in my head? Rob? Oh, no. Is, was Rob real? Rob. Is Ro- Wait, are you telling me that there is no Rob? David, I don't- We usually have a third co-host, right? No. It's always just been you and I. Bum, bum, oh, bum. oh no! Oh no! Come back to reality, David. <laughs> David, <laughs> tweet at us and let us know. Did you guys see these plot twists coming? Especially the one where we find out that David has thought there was a third co-host this entire time. <laughs> Till next time, mutts. See ya.
Whores don't deserve a second chance. <laughs>